Welcome to the XCGS Cart by Cart podcast, the first and only podcast covering Atari's last answer to the 8-bit gaming system. In episode 7, we have a lip-smacking review of Food Fight, and we'll put our lives on the line for you by participating in the deadly budget game, Death Race. Now here are our hosts, Bill, David, Kieran, and Michael. Hello everybody, and welcome to episode 7 of the XCGS Cart by Cart podcast. This week we are going to be helping Charlie Chuck satisfy his insatiable appetite with ice cream and much more in the classic arcade port food fight then we're going to be racing to the death in this episode's classic budget game death race by atlantis software so let's go with the news to start us off and uh, over to you michael okay well unfortunately david can't make it uh to the podcast again this time uh he's on yet another osi assignment but he says hello to all the listeners and hopes to be back for the next show in the meantime, you can hear him and Captain Bob review Star Raiders in their latest episode of the 5200 podcast. Uh, Vapniak 2017 took place in Warsaw, Poland in May, uh, which included music and graphics competitions, plus a bunch of new games were shown, a uh, port of the Konami's 1982 arcade shooter, Time Pilot, a must-have arcade conversion. Two platformer games, Crazy Cat and Hot and Cold Adventure, a casual cell phone style game, Podskocek, an arcade action shooter, Black Rescue, and Catch the Wave, plus more, Headache, Vox Regis, and Zabich Ducha, I think that's a Ghost Killer. Uh, we'll have links to the, a video that includes some of these games, as well as a full competition results in our show notes. Uh, if you haven't seen the recent trailer for the upcoming movie Blade Runner 2049, please go and check it out. Aside from the amazing visuals, you'll notice a familiar Atari corporate logo. For those not familiar with the original Blade Runner, the Atari Fuji logo was also featured in the movie and comic book, which I still actually have in my collection. So um, I have a question. What what is with the year 2049? We got 20 uh, minor 2049er, San Francisco Rush 2049, and and now a bit. Something's gonna happen in 2049. That's all I'm saying. Well, I think I'll be <laughs> I think I'll be 90 by then or something. <laughs> um, you know, the original movie uh, was supposed to take place in 2019. So since the original one was uh, released in, in 1982, that's 32 years. So I we still don't have flying cars really. So I'm guessing uh, since 2049 it's 37 years off uh who wants to make the bet that we'll have flying cars by then Hmm. yeah yeah (laughs) and besides like i said i'll probably be too old to drive them so i really (laughs) don't care at this point (laughs) special permit (laughs) yeah get them away a fellow named uh, paul rickards has created an rs232 based wi-fi adapter which people can now use to get the retro computers online including the atari 8-bit And a port of Namco's arcade game Bosconi is being developed for the Atari 8-bits. Uh, Filippo Santalaco, uh, PhilSan69, posted a nice gameplay video on it recently. Alert, alert. Alive, alive. I know, I love that game in the arcades. It was fun. And it, you know, it's not too many of them had that speech, so that was pretty special. I think that time they also had pole position and, of course, Zork. 
that uh, Zork. Um, what was it? Um, Gorf. Berserk Sinister as well. How many names? Oh, how many games can we name? <laughs> yeah, I know. They all start flooding in. <laughs> yeah, back then there was only like I don't know, 10, 15, 20 games with voice back then. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> It was so special. <laughs> Fragmare over at the Atari Age forums and YouTube has been making covers of various video game songs, mostly Nintendo NES titles like Mega Man, Ninja Gaiden, and Castlevania using the Atari 8-Bits Pokey. He uses Raster Music Tracker and Altera Emulator. We'll have a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes. So uh, let's catch up with our host, uh, see what they've been up to. I guess I'll go first. I got a lot to talk about, I guess. Um I've added a few more things to my collection. Let's start with the Atari stuff. Uh, I guess I'll give an update on my uh, broken X800XL. I recently opened it up uh, to figure out what was going on uh, with the weird video issue, and I didn't really notice anything was damaged, but everything was socketed, which is totally sweet. I don't have to do that now. And uh, there was an obvious modification in form of a little toggle switch uh, inside the case, actually, uh, it was near the cartridge slot, and the wires went to one of the ROM chips, or I should say, the ROM the ROM chip. As it turns out, it's uh it's a it's a modification called the XL Boss by Allen Microware, and allows you to switch between the XL's uh, revision C ROM to the revision B. And I'm sure some of us all know that there were some programs uh, back in the day that uh, didn't actually work on the XL, so you had to pop in the translator disk. So this saves you the trouble. Um, originally retailed for $79.95 for the 800XL and $89.95 for the 1200. So I guess the uh, 1200XL need a little bit more uh, help. Hey, hey. <laughs> Actually, my, uh, my, my 1200XL, um, I, I don't think it's the, the <clears throat> excuse me, XL boss, but um, uh, my RF switch has uh-huh. been set up to switch between X, um, 800XL OS and 800 OS. So oh, um, I, I have some basically something similar, and I never use it. <laughs> oh, really? No, you've yeah. never run into anything that doesn't work? Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think the last time I ever I – I, I think I did boot into something at an Atari party once, and then I forgot to switch it back, and then I got all freaked out that nothing was loading, and then I went, oh, right, <laughs> I flipped the switch. So um, it's, yeah. it's basically the panic switch for me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I had something like that for my XE back in the day, but it was made by a guy locally. I remember going to one of the parties, and he was selling them for like 35 bucks. And this isn't the same thing, because I guess this came out of Redondo Beach, California. So, But it's nice to know you, you got yourself a, a nice little add-on, a little surprise when you open up the case. And, whoa, what's this? So, Anyway, it's got some other cool features. I won't bore people with it, but we'll have a link on it in the show notes. Um, and I also won an auction, uh, which included uh, Pilot with Turtle Graphics Binder. It had all the documentation, cart cassettes. And I'm not really a pilot user, but the auction also came with Asteroids and Pac-Man inbox, uh, basic reference manual, and a bunch of Atari promo stuff, which was in beautiful condition and will look nicely on my hopefully sometime soon created retro room. And uh, in non-related Atari acquisitions, uh, many of these things were in some <laughs> need of repair, which is typical when I win stuff or find stuff. I picked up a, a Timex Sinclair 1000 with a 16K RAM module in box from a person locally. I guess he was the original owner. Uh, unfortunately, no manual was included, but I'll have to hunt one of those down to get a complete set. I also won an auction for a Sinclair 2020 tape drive to make a nice little set. 
And I got my first Apple uh, 2E with monitor, and the monitor didn't work, but I was recently gifted a working Apple 3 monitor, so that does work. And that also came with a Commodore 128 in the gift, so that was nice to have. And speaking of Commodore, sorry, boo. <laughs> I guess we're just supposed to say that, right? Um, well, D- David's not here, so he's not going to stop oh, us. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> I also got another 64 from the original owner. Uh, it also came with a Commodore 300 baud modem and Enhancer a 2000 floppy drive. I hear those things aren't very compatible, but it'd be a nice little museum piece to my collection. And finally, I wasn't able to make the TI-99 Fest West in this year. Um, it was unfortunate since I guess Kevin Savage came up and went to it, so I would have been nice to meet him. But I did make it to a local Commodore meeting for – it's the PSCUG or Puget Sound Computer Users Group and then met a bunch of guys. and They're very nice. Chat a lot about just stuff we we're up to and, of course, I plugged the, the podcast. And I checked out some of their projects they were working on, really nice stuff. And uh, it's cool that, you know, everybody else is doing their own thing, and hopefully they can – if we don't have something like that, they can kind of bleed over into our stuff. So, And I just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sad that uh, somebody doesn't actually have, like, some sort of Atari party in my neck of the woods. It's all the other systems. So, um, But anyway, what are you up to, Bill? <coughs> Segway. <coughs> Excuse me. Um <laughs> So yeah, my big news is that I'm moving on up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, hey. so I'm going to be pretty, I don't know where you are exactly, but I'm going to be, uh, over in Olympia, Washington. Um, uh, a few days after record today, my wife and I will be signing the closing papers for our house up there. Um, so I'll be close to, to Michael and I'll be close to, uh, Kevin down in Portland. Um, it's going to be hard to leave California. I've been over here for over years, uh, over 40 years, um, since I was born. And, uh, here in Davis, I've been basically the latter half of that. Um, so, with a Atari party, um, well, uh, my, my new buddy, Marlon Bates, who I, I met and now I'm gonna leave, <laughs> uh, also known as McRoy over on Atari Age, um, he lives in Sacramento region as well, um, and he actually has quite an impressive collection of Atari gear. Uh, it's more than I would ever consider owning myself, like, it's, it's too much for me. Um, I remember when I visited and he had a, uh, Jaguar kiosk set up in, in, in his oh, little, wow. It's not a room. He has a building. He has he has the the man cave building full of video games. Wow. And um, <clears throat> I look down. And I go, oh, he got an Atari Lynx. And he opens up the Jaguar kiosk, and in the bottom, it's like stacks of Atari Lynxes and like more Jaguars crammed in there. So so yeah, it's in good hands. He's gonna be taking that over for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it sounds like he's he's hoping to put one uh together later this summer. Um, he said about sometime around August maybe, but uh, but we'll see. There's nothing been confirmed. Um. Ooh. Besides that, yeah, nothing else new. Just oh my god, buying a house and moving now. So scary. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah, my my ne- <laughs> my next podcast report recording will be I don't know maybe from Michael's house. We'll see. <laughs> That'd be cool. Just invite I, my I, just invite I, myself yeah, over. Just show up. Yeah. <laughs> I need to have a room where I can have like two mics. So I can have my you know my guest. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> all right. So Kieran, what what are you up to? Yeah. So loads. So first of all, I was going to start off by mentioning another new release um i don't know if you guys have picked this up but uh marius uh Wojcik, i don't know if i pronounced that right but he's best known as marius and um a uh, well-known guy jose Pereira, have done a port of the zx spectrum classic school days um probably won't be so familiar to uh american audiences but uh, over here in the uk it was a hugely hugely popular game um, by a company called Microsphere. They didn't make um, many games because, interestingly enough, 
um, after making about only about five or six games, which were all very, very good and all um, uh, very well received, the uh, owners decided that they were losing too much money to piracy and called it quits and just disappeared. But uh, School Days was one of their that was probably their biggest hit. They did follow it up with a with a sequel called Back to School as well, which is actually um, much better. But the original School Days was released for the Spectrum and then later they ported it to the uh, Commodore 64. And the Atari 8-bit version is based on the Commodore 64 version. Same code, but um, they've made um, quite a few improvements using PMGs and the such like to make it a bit more colourful and uh, a bit more interesting. And uh, to give a sort of quick overview of what the game's about for, for, for those who, who aren't familiar, it was probably one of the very, very first open world games. Um, you were a kid in a school. And although there were set things that you had to do, you could pretty much play the game as you wished. So you'd go around the school, you'd have to attend lessons. If you didn't attend lessons, the teachers would come after you. Um, but there was ways of running, running away, hiding, things like that. Um and uh, you could write on the blackboards, you could punch the other pupils, you could search the desks to find weapons, um, all sorts of things like that. It, um, you know, you could hit the teachers, and if you were clever, you could hit the teachers, and then they would blame other children if they were close <laughs> enough to them. And um, another unique thing was that it allowed you to name the other kids and the teachers. So you could name it all the teachers as the teachers at your very own school. Oh, God. Oh, wow. Which is pretty yeah, so, so I, I, I was going to say this sounds like Bart Simpson the game, but the more you described it, the more it sounded like Beavis and Butthead the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're familiar with a game um, Rockstar did quite a few years back called Bully. Yeah. Um, it's quite well known. Um, well, Rockstar, as, as you you probably know, were, were originally, well, they were a British company. Yeah. Um, and the guys, the guys, Rockstar originally a company called DMA Design. And Bully was basically was designed as a 3D remake of School Days. That when they released it, they actually said, you know, it's a 3D remake of School Days because they grew up playing that game and loved it and thought it needed to be remade. That's awesome. So, yeah. so Bully is, so if you're familiar with Bully, School Days is basically Bully in 2D, pretty much. Yeah. So it's the port's not finished yet, but I'm sure by the time this podcast goes out, it probably will be because I know that last I heard they were putting the very finishing touches to it. So it'll be a definite, um, a, a big game to check out when it's out. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's an amazing game and, I think you know a lot of the American listeners won't be familiar or familiar with it, um, but I'm sure they will be when um, when it comes out. I mean, I, I really hope they do the sequel because the sequel added a lot more, like it added in a girls' school and things like that, so you could go to different locations. Um, oh. But but the sequel only came out on the Spectrum, so there wouldn't be any code they could port across because obviously the Spectrum being a Z80 um, machine, so it would be a lot lot more difficult to um, to port it. But um, we can hope. Yeah, it looks fun. So that's that's yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's an amazing game. It's worth watching some um, some videos of it and, and and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was pretty uh, pretty excited about Bosconian and Time Pilot, but I'm even more excited about School Days. <laughs> so second thing, um, I I think I mentioned this on the previous episode. Um, I said it was going to be out soon, um, and it wasn't. But it's I can promise you, it is out now. And that's my uh, latest book, which is the A to Z of Atari 8-bit games. And uh, I, I, this is the third book now. I'm trying to think now. It's the third, third, fourth book. It's the fourth book because what happened was actually my publisher decided to um, mix up the order that I'd sent them to them in 
and um, this was this wasn't supposed to this was supposed to have been out earlier, but they did the uh, the NES book first. So that's available now to buy from um, Amazon. Um, we've got the links in the show notes, but otherwise you can just just look me up on Amazon. Just look for my name, Kieran Hawken. I've got my own author page, so you can find all my books there. So look it up. And basically, to give a quick overview of what the book's about is, is it's not a complete A to Z. It's not trying to be anything like that. It's basically I've got 78 games in there, three for each letter of the alphabet. Uh, there's a review of each game. Some of it's, um, you know, there's a bit of nostalgia, stories, all sorts of little bits and pieces in there with the reviews. Um, but it's it's the first volume, so I intend to do more that will cover more games. So hopefully, that, that, you know, I'll, I'll be able to put it all all together into one big one, um, which will be more comprehensive. But uh, it's it's a pretty reasonable price. I think it works out about three dollars something for 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 the U- US and in the UK it's two pounds. So uh, it's it's yeah. So it's, it's a digital book. Um, there's no print edition yet, but a lot of people have been asking for print editions. Yeah, so I saw just that. <laughs> last week, just last week I was talking to the, my publisher, and um, there is some talks about doing um, a print edition in the future. What will probably happen is we'll wait till I've got at least a, a couple of volumes out and then put them together to do a limited edition print version. Oh, so that is the, that is the plan at the moment, um, because apparently they have been selling quite well as the, the digital versions. So my publisher is quite pleased with um, with the sales on them so far, you know, to, to make it worthwhile to uh, put the extra investment into the print versions. So, yeah, I've got four out now. As I said, um, Atari 2600, uh, Sega Master System. Uh, NES, Atari 8-bit. The next two that should be coming out are Atari ST, should be next, followed by Mega Drive. Um, I've also got, I've also completed one for the ColecoVision, that's ready um, to go, and one for the ZX Spectrum, which is also ready to, to go. But I have lots more in the pipeline. And uh, Mega Drive is, is the, they branded it as the Genesis in the US, right? Yes, this, I should have said, yeah, Naughty Mate. Oh, that's okay. The, the entire the entire rest of the world called it the Mega Drive, but in the in the US you knew it as the Genesis. <laughs> we have just to, to be special. Awkward. Yeah, just to be yeah. just to be awkward. Yeah. Uh, also, um, a, uh, another little bit of um, writing work that I've been doing, um, as always, Retro Gamer. Uh, some of the stuff I've been doing in that. So, uh, issue one six eight, which is the latest issue here. You guys are about a month behind in the US. So it's what may now see it will probably be your your uh, June, your June issue. And uh, I did a little feature on the excellent Atari 8-bit shooter Tale of Beta Lyrae, talking a little bit about the um, the game and its its best moments, basically. And uh, for those who don't know, it was done by the same guy who did uh, Alternate Reality, uh, Philip Price. So very, very good oh, little wow. game. You know, I didn't yeah, know what, that. Yeah. He yeah. didn't do many games, but... Uh, yeah, Tale of Beta Lyra is, is, is a great little game. I um, thoroughly enjoy it. So um, every now and again, we get the chance to sort of do a little feature on a game that people might not know. So um, I was approached to do an Atari a bit one, and uh, I thought that fitted the bill. So well worth checking out. And uh, coming up, not specifically uh, Atari a bit related, but in uh, next month's issue, which will be issue 169, I've done a big in-depth feature on the arcade company Ballet Sente. Uh, originally known as Vidia, they were made up of uh, ex-Atari staff. So the founders were Howard Delman, Ed Rotberg, of course, of Battlezone fame, 
uh, Roger Hector and uh, Owen Rubin um, worked there as well. Of course, he did stuff like Major Havoc, etc., etc. And um, for a while, Nolan Bushnell was the owner. Um, oh, they were actually a division of Chuck E. Cheese for a while before Chuck E. Cheese went bust. And then he sold the company to, to Bally Midway. This is when it became Bally Sente. So I've interviewed all of the guys involved, including um, pretty much everyone who worked there almost. I mean, the guys like Lee Actor as well, who did quite a lot of stuff on the Atari 8-bit. Um, he worked with them as well. So I've got him in my interview as well. Uh, so there's loads of great stories in there. Um, and obviously a lot of stuff that's um, Atari related because pretty much everyone who worked there was um, was ex-Atari. So there's a, you know, there's a big, big connection there to um, to all of that. And last of all, um, pretty much on, on, on two more things, actually. But um, one more thing I'll mention here while we're on the subject of Atari uh, related media. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a, a new film out called Easy to Learn, Hard to Master, The Fate of Atari. I actually backed this on Kickstarter and then almost forgot that I'd done it. And now I got an email one day saying um, it's ready out and you can go and view your, your digital version. And I was like, oh, wow. And uh, it was one of those where it was I wasn't sure to back it because it didn't seem like it was going to have much that hadn't been told before, you know, in terms of stories and stuff. We all know the Atari story, you know. And as soon as I saw Nolan Bushnell's name there, I thought, yeah, it's going to be him waxing lyrical about, um, you know, how he invented video games, basically, for um, (laughs) for an hour or so. Um, But uh, I backed it anyway because it it, it needed a little bit to reach its goal and it just about did it. So I I got in there and and did back it. But um, the first half an hour of it, um, I was a bit, "Mm, this is telling the same old stories that I've heard a million times before. But the, um, the, the next sort of hour and a half of the movie is absolutely fascinating for the for the simple reason that they managed to interview uh former atari ceo ray kassar and he's never been interviewed before and i think we all know the stories about ray kassar you know calling programmers prima donnas and saying they were ten a penny and all of those kind of stories about you know he was not supposed to have been a very nice guy and he wasn't really interested in in video games or the atari brand in general so it makes a really nice face off because what it becomes is it almost becomes like a hero and villain uh, story with with Nolan, obviously Bushnell on one side and Ray Kassar on the other. Absolutely fascinating watch um, just for that, really. I have done a YouTube um, review that goes into a bit more detail. So I stuck the link in the show notes, but, but definitely worth looking up. And the last thing I want to mention is uh, I'm going to be back to doing my own events again um for the last few years i've i've mostly got involved in in running other people's events um and uh not so much of not so much of my own stuff um and i'm going to be doing one really big event this year i haven't done a really big event like this for for quite a long time and it's going to be called the retro show and i'm teaming up with lots of people who are going to be supporting me it's going to be held um in my my well, not my hometown, but it's where I live, a place called Luton in England, uh, which is very easy to get to for anyone in the UK. I'm sure they'll know because Luton has an airport that that you can get uh, direct flights for pretty much the whole of Europe into. And um, the the venue is also right next to the mainline train station and the M1 motorway. So it's, it's a very, very easy place to get to for anyone in the UK or, or even indeed in Europe. And uh, although the main theme is going to be uh, Spectrum and Commodore 64 because both machines celebrate their 35th anniversary uh, this year 
and there was a big rivalry between the two so we, that's going to be a big sort of theme of the show um but there's going to be obviously plenty of atari presence there especially with me being in charge and atari being my big love so of course i'll have my my zegs there and my jaguar and and, and lots of other atari uh, machines to play on and um there's going to be guest talks there as well and at least one of the talks that we're going to have will be atari related but that's to be confirmed i'm speaking to a few people so i don't want to um to reveal that until until i've had uh confirmation on uh who it's going to be so hopefully I'll, I'll have a bit more info on um on that in the next episode but the tickets are available to buy so you can go to the retroshow.co.uk that's our website or look up the retro show uk on facebook for the facebook page and that is uh that's that's all my stuff actually from uh the news so uh michael i believe you've got a few little things you want to add from last month's episode yeah just one thing um small little uh, I made a small little mistake in the show editing. I left off the number three when I was mentioning um, there's a level selection option in uh, Rescue on Fractalus, and you could actually increment or decrement the um, the levels by threes by moving the joystick. Now, when I asked the question to you guys, you guys went, uh, I don't remember that. <laughs> so it's probably no big deal, but it just it sounded weird when I was – when I forgot to edit so i was listening to it and went, oh, i forgot the number three so if anybody noticed that probably didn't but i figured i mentioned the show notes all right so we shall now review food fight uh this is um a 1987 game published by atari corp um model number rx 8079 uh it's a arcade style game because it was an arcade game <laughs> uh the developer was uh john sanderson from general computer corporation which we'll get into in a sec so the description for the back of the XEGS box um, goes as follows. It's every school kid's dream come true and every chef's nightmare. Charlie loves to eat. One day he visits the carnival and heads straight for the food fight contest. Help Charlie hurl mounds and mounds of fabulous food at disgruntled chefs. Spinach, bananas, tomatoes, watermelon. Um, I think the spinach was supposed to be peas, but okay. Um, avoid the chef's attacks. They'll bury you under a mound of mush. Force the chefs to retreat and fight your way across the screen. If it hasn't melted away, you'll be rewarded with a giant ice cream cone. Gulp it down and lick your lips, then get ready for round two. Food fight! Race the clock, cream the chefs, and keep your eye on the leftovers for one or two players. Um, and I'll make a note that's uh, taking turns, not simultaneous. Um, so some things to note from the instructions. Uh, Charlie has 32 seconds to race to the ice cream cone before it melts away. Level 1 starts with three manholes from which the chefs appear and into which Charlie can fall and lose a life, uh, and two chefs. Level 2 adds a third chef, and level 3 and beyond have all four chefs. Uh, chefs are yellow or purple. Uh, I'm sorry. Chefs that are yellow or purple can't, uh, can't hurt Charlie, so that's when they get smashed with food. Um, if you're carrying food when you get the cone, you carry it to the next level. Uh, levels 1 to 5 have random assortments of food. Level 6 and up have one kind per level. Uh, so starting the game, uh, move the joystick up and down to choose one or two players, and move the joystick left or right to choose the difficulty level, beginner, intermediate, advanced, or expert. Um, or you can press either select or option to cycle through the eight variations. Um, I always found this kind of clunky. I'm used to, say, select for the level and option for the number of players, but this basically they look at either button and they just treat them as, like, cycle through one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Anyway, then press start or fire to begin the game. Uh, at each player's game start, use the joystick up and down to choose a starting level, one to 16. Uh, so you start the game uh, at a particular difficulty level, and then you actually choose the level within the game to play. Uh, 
So there are uh, four chefs, uh, Jacques, Oscar, Angelo, and Zorba. You can tell them apart by the shape and size of their toques, their little chef hats. Uh, I'm not sure if they actually act differently in this game, so I don't know if it matters what they look like, but uh, it's a little bit of a frantic game anyway, so it's probably a little hard to pay attention to that, unless you're really good. So scoring. Um, 100 points for the first chef you wallop in a level, 200 for the second, and so on up. So it's a little bit like Pac-Man, uh, up to 1,000 points. <laughs> Two hundred points for forcing a chef into a manhole, and cones are worth five hundred points times the level number up to a maximum of twenty-five thousand points at level fifty and beyond. Uh, so, in other words, level uh, five hundred on level one, thousand level two, fifteen hundred on level three, and so on. Um, you also get a hundred-point bonus for each piece of food left on the screen at the end of the level. They all kind of fly up and splat into the score. Um, if you play really well, you're rewarded with an instant replay. If not, it's game over. Um, you get extra lives at 25,000 and 100,000 points, and every 100,000 thereafter. You also get extra lives uh, every 10th level if you start the game on level 10. Press select to pause, and option to abort back to the title screen. Giant Bomb's description of the game, we'll have a link in the show notes, uh, gives a few additional hints. Different types of food have different ballistic properties. Tomatoes and bananas are the rifles of the food-fighting world. They work at long range, uh, but require accuracy. Peas act as shotguns, uh, so this would be the spinach, I guess, in this version of the game. Um, they cover a wider arc, but have short range. Um, pies fall in between these extremes. And as in the Pac-Man franchise, the four chefs employ slightly different strategies. Okay, so this, at least in the arcade game, they do. Um, for example, one chef will try to block the player's escape by staying halfway between the player and the cone. Every fifth level features giant slices of watermelon taking places of normal food piles on the board. Uh, watermelons are nature's perfect weapon. They never run out, so a player standing on a watermelon pile can throw infinite watermelon slices at the enemy. This makes watermelon levels great for racking up points, though the player must still be careful not to let time run out. But of course, all this food is also available to the chefs as well, so be careful. Uh, so a little bit of legacy. Um, it was originally a 1983 arcade game released by Atari Incorporated, and they styled it as Charlie Chuck's Food Fight. And it was actually developed by GCC. The American, uh, sorry, American Classic Arcade Museum's website had an interview with Jonathan Hurd, who created the game. I pasted a link into our show notes, and then when I went to look at it again later, the page was gone. So we'll have a link to the Internet Archive um, <laughs> Wayback Machine copy of that. Yeah. Um, a little quote from there is, uh, I wanted to come up with something different, something that was less violent, possibly funny, and that would appeal to both male and female players. Most games had a fire button, so I thought, what else could a button do? I'm a baseball fan, so I thought, throw. But throw what? I thought food. So there you go. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where this game came up. What else can you do instead of shoot? You can throw. What can you throw? Food. Game. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was one of the earliest arcade games to use the Motorola 68000 CPU, uh, which were found uh, shortly after in the Apple Macintosh, Tri-ST, Commodore Omega, Sega Genesis, a.k.a. Mega Drive. Um, it was actually written in C on a Unix-based wow. uh, Unix cross-development system, um, though obviously had a lot of 68,000 assembler code, of course. Um, the instant replay feature came about because the arcade game only ended up using about half of the 8K of RAM that they had for it. Uh, so they just used the rest to record um, the joystick and throw button input, like exactly when, when you jostled the joystick and hit the button. And because the rest of the game is deterministic, basically it's based on random numbers, but they're generated with a seed number, so they they can be re reproduced. Um, 
doing the doing the re- reproduction of the gameplay was easy. All, all you have to do is start from the beginning and throw in the the player's controls uh, as they happen, and there you go. It had a really interesting 49-way joystick. So we are kind of missing out with our little 8-way controls on the uh, XEGS and also the uh, 7800 port of the game. Noted by uh, Minwa over on the Arcade Controls Forum, uh, quote, This game uses a special analog joystick that is comprised of a centering bellows and two potentiometers. In the interview with Jonathan Hurd, he talked about the various control schemes they tried. They tried a Pac-Man joystick, but it didn't have enough directions. Um, they tried a knob with the throw and move buttons. They discovered that people always moved, so they tried adding a stop button instead, um, and that's actually how the game was first demonstrated to Atari executives. Uh, they also considered but didn't implement um, trackball or two joysticks, a la Robotron. Um, and then Jonathan goes on, the final joystick had two potentiometers, one for horizontal X and uh, the other for vertical Y positions. Each potentiometer was hooked up to an analog-to-digital converter, so that gave us one byte for X and one for Y. And then uh, we created a grid of possible joystick positions where the X and Y gave an angle. So you could point and throw in one of 72 different directions. Uh, they split 360 degrees into 72 angles um, with five degrees between each angle. And then if you stayed near the middle of the grid, you didn't move. You could throw in any direction. So in other words, if you kept the joystick kind of in the center, and, po- and you, you could point Charlie in different directions but without running around, uh, which you can't do in this one. Um, so basically, again, if you move the control to the edge of the grid, you would move in that direction. This created a lot of flexibility um, because you could stay on a pile of food, like the infinite watermelon pile, and keep throwing in any direction, um, or you could throw while moving. So simply put, as U underscore rebel scum on the arcade controller forum explains, this meant that pushing a little, a little in a direction makes you face and throw that way. Pushing more makes you run that way. It's uh, definitely something you cannot do in the XCGS version. Um, mm-hmm. The moment you tap a direction, you're, you're moving that way. There was a making of Food Fight in Retro Gamer issue 135 that interviewed all the people behind it and went quite um, in depth into the story behind it. It was, it was a very, very nice article. So I've put a link um, to that exact issue of Retro Game in the show notes. Excellent. I'm, I'm sad that I didn't come across that, because that probably wouldn't mm. really good. Okay. So the world record high score holders, again, this is the arcade, um, for default settings, that's uh, Ken Okamura uh, from way back in 1984 with 103,103,100 points. Oh, he was just three points shy of a perfect score, um, <laughs> of an of a, uh, OCD score. Um, <laughs> tournament settings, uh, John Dworkin. Uh, back in June 2001, with 1,234,100 points. This game was released for Game Room on the Xbox 360, and there's also an Atari 7800 port, also from 1987, also by GCC. Uh, it was included in the original Atari Flashback from 2004, although that system is really just an NES on a chip. Uh, so like a lot of other games, or basically like all the other games on that system, it is uh, a remake for the NES. GameFAQs notes a 2600 port was in the works, but canceled. Uh, Giant Bomb mentions a canceled Atari ST version. And uh, some clones were made. Um, Food War for the TRS-80 color computer and Mud Pies for the TRS-80 color and the Atari ST. All right, where to buy? Uh, Best Electronics has it uh, $30 US, uh, brand new. BNC Computer Visions has it $30 new in box and $20 cart only. And uh, when I checked eBay earlier this year, 2017, uh, it was between 10 to 40 US, uh, including a bunch from Europe. Um, so other ports and their reviews that you can listen to online. Uh, 7800 Game by Game Podcast Episode 4 covers uh, Dig Dug and Food Fight. Uh, no Quarter Podcast Episode 39 and Press Continue Podcast Episode 34 cover the arcade versions. So on to our reviews. Michael, tell us what you think of this game. All right. Well, Food Fight was one of my favorite arcade games back in the day. 
And uh, it was such a great and original concept. I mean, throwing food is, is so like obvious, especially when you're a kid. You always wanted to have that big food fight in the lunchroom. But I've said this before, I'm not a fan of the arcade conversions unless they can come as close to the arcade version as possible. And that's going to be difficult seeing that this had the 68,000 and we're working with 6502, but uh, let's see how that turns out. So for graphics, I give this a six. I think they probably did as well as they could considering what you had to work with. Everything looks similar uh, to the elements of the arcade, but it really wasn't blown away by the look of it. Uh, sound, I give it a five. Um, it seems to have all the sounds and music from the arcade, but when compared to the limited sound capabilities of 7800, I was surprised to not notice much difference uh, between the two. And to be honest, I thought at some points uh, the 7800 actually sounded better. So that's not too good. Um, gameplay, I give it a four. Um, I like that they allow you to choose whatever level you want to start at. Uh, offering the two players is a good option. But the four levels of difficulty just seem to translate to faster movement in the game. The eight-way stick is extremely limiting. And um, I think this is one of the games that the 5200 should would, you know, be nice to have on that system. Unfortunately, this game takes 64K, and then the 5200 only has 16. So unless they get some you know, added memory on the, on the cart, I don't think you'll ever see that. Um, you can fire off multiple projectiles by sitting on the pile of food, but it's difficult with the joystick. Like it, it's, you know, in the arcade, you sit on it and start firing and it doesn't seem to be that easy in this version. But here's my major complaint. The game is not fluid and the character's movement is jumpy and it really detracts from the gameplay. And finally, presentation, I give it a six. Uh, You get the instant replay, which I love in video games, Uh, but the intro screen is very bland. You get the title image, but it's brown, at least on my TV. Uh, I I noticed in the the emulator it was more of an orange color or a brownie orange, but it makes me think of the food had already been passed already. So, Oh, God. (laughs) Well, remember what NTSC stands for. It's uh, never the same color. Oh, yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd look at it, pal. (laughs) Because he'd be my friend, right? Uh, In in the arcade version, the title has food being thrown back and forth. My guess is, again, another limitation of what the Atari can do. But it would have been nice to see something different other than that sort of bland, you know, just level. You got the title and you got the, you know, choose your options. And then the year the game was made and who made it. I noticed the demo seemed to repeat over and over. I I let it sit there and run and it was the same demo just over and over. They had multiple demos. But it didn't seem to randomize it. And they had one where the, basically the, uh, Charlie just ran from right to left, right into the hands of the, in, uh, into the hands of the chef. So that was, it's like they went, eh, you know, demo screen. Box art is fine, but nothing great. The back of the box is your typical XE game box. The manual has a lot of information about the game, but its presentation is sort of simple and some of the layout's a little bit sloppy. The backstory doesn't exactly make a lot of sense, but I do like how they incorporated uh, the story within the explanation of the rules. So overall, I give the game a six. Uh, the game hits all the beats of the arcade, and but due to the machine's limitations compared to the arcade and the, and the possibility of well-known Atari short production schedules, I think it's a pretty good attempt. But as a game, I just don't see playing it past this review. Even if I had purchased this game back in 87, I don't think it would have been a good substitute for the arcade version. So if the recipe called for a good uh, for a food fight arcade game conversion for the Atari computer, the Atari got all they ordered. But after checking off the ingredients, 
when it's time to cook it all up, I think they uh, forgot the most important addition, love. <laughs> that was you're, terrible. You're, pra- you're proud God. of that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that up last night. I go, damn, this is so cheesy. <laughs> There's no cheese in the game, though. Come on. Oh! Right. It comes thinking, with extra cheese. You're thinking mousetrap. <laughs> all right. Moving on. All right. Yeah, right. sorry. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so for me, uh, graphics, I gave it a six. Um, it looks fair enough compared to the arcade, in my opinion. Um, but that wasn't really a graphical powerhouse to begin with. I mean, it had, it was cute and it had a lot of sprites, but it has a very big, black, dull background. Um, at the time, it was probably, like, I remember being pretty impressed with it. I saw it in the arcade. Well, I saw the arcade version in a, in a restaurant in San Francisco, I think. I think it was the Hippo restaurant, um, that we would go to sometimes when we visited. And, um, you know, I, I can imagine those those detailed sprites glowing on a black background was pretty impressive. But nowadays, it's like, yeah, I've seen games with giant black backgrounds. That's that's all what they all look like back then. Um, sound of music, uh, I gave it a six. Um, like the arcade, it did not have a ton of sounds um, and only a few tunes. Um, gameplay seven uh, seems good from what I remember the arcade uh, thirty plus years ago, and I find it a fun and frenetic game. Uh, Presentation 7 um, represents the arcade game well, has nice fonts, um, and the artwork on the box manual and cartridge is cute. It's not identical to the arcade, uh, but a close representation. Um, So overall, I gave it 7 out of 10. How about you, Kieran? Right. uh, I have to say, uh, first of all, um, I don't remember the arcade game at all. I'm not even sure we had it over here. Um, We may well not have. But um, my first experience of playing it was on the Atari 7800. And it was probably only about um, 10 years ago that I first played it. So uh, Food Fight is probably uh, a newer game to me than a lot of other people out there. But um, when I picked up the the 7800 version, it quickly became one of my my favourite titles for that machine. I absolutely adore the 7800 version. And uh, the first thing I noticed about the... the, XEGS port when I uh, when I picked it up and, and played it was it, it they've clearly clearly ported the 7800 version over and that even shows with stuff like the title screen um, that you mentioned earlier where you, you you know you just hit the select button it goes through the options because obviously that's what the option button did on the Atari 7800 version so they haven't even bothered to change that um, they've left that exactly the same as the 7800 version. So with that in mind, I went with Graphics 7. Um, it's pretty authentic to the arcade game, but I found the graphics to be very green. I don't know if this is a panel thing um, or whether it's uh, the same on, on, on NTSC, but um, on, on a PAL system, certainly everything just seems to have a tinge of green about it. Um, it it's, it's quite strange, really. It just seems to have used green a lot throughout the, uh, the entire game. Um, Even the spinach to slash a peas? <laughs> <laughs> yes, especially then. But there seems to be a lot of cases where things should be white, for example, and they seem to be light green. So it's, it's quite strange. Um, sound and music, um, it, it's, it's okay, um, but it could have been better given the hardware. Again, the sound effects were almost like a slightly crappier version of the 7800 ones, which is quite strange. Because uh, the the other game that that reminds me of is Desert Falcon, which is is very much has very much the same problem. I find in that they clearly just tried to port across the 7800 version, but didn't optimize it for the hardware in question. 
Uh, whereas obviously the the, the seventy eight hundred has has some distinct advantages over the 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 eight bit um, Atari eight bit hardware, especially in the graphics area. But the big um, advantage that the obviously the Atari eight bit hardware has is in the sound area. But they don't seem to have taken any advantage of that at all. Gameplay, um, although it, uh, I gave it a seven, um, although it's very enjoyable, uh, the gameplay uh, is a little choppy. And nowhere near as smooth as it should be. The, the sprites tend to to jump around the screen a little bit. Um, it, it, it's almost kind of strange because it, it can be smooth one minute and then it will kind of go a little bit choppy when there's a lot on screen and then go back to being smooth again. It, it's it, it's almost a bit disruptive the experience sometimes. I think it's a good way to describe it. So presentation seven again. Uh, Nice box art. I do like the box art a lot. Um, what, what's in game is perfectly adequate, but it's nothing, you know, that's going to jump out at you. So following a theme here, I, I went overall seven as well. Um, I said, you know, it, it's a good game. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, but it just feels, it does feel like a lazy port of the vastly superior, uh, 7800 version. And as much as I, I do enjoy it, and I do, if I actually put on my, my, um, my Zegs, I could do quite often end up playing Food Fight. But then every time I play it, I just kind of wish I was playing the 7800 port because it is um, considerably better and considerably more polished. And I think uh, one thing that's worth remembering, actually, with regards to the 7800 version is that GCC did the 7800 version themselves. They did the port. So that's probably why it's so good. Whereas I would imagine with the the Zegs version, um, Atari gave the source code to some guy who was incredibly cheap and went, you've got two weeks, port it, or we don't pay. Um, uh, well, I have it, I have it down that, that somebody from GCC actually developed this version. Oh. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It was busy. Uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, I'd be surprised because, um, I wasn't aware that the, the travels did anything with GCC. Um, I could be wrong. Um, but I wasn't aware they worked with GCC really at all, apart from obviously using stuff that they'd already done. Hmm. Um, for the 7800, because obviously a lot of stuff was done before the, for the, the original launch. Um, but it, it's quite possible. It might just be that, that because the source code was somebody else's, that's, that's, that someone from GCC is kind of being credited for the, mm. the, the, the XCGS version as well, which is quite possible. And then there's some unknown coder because it goes back to something, um, actually another, another guy told me, which was, uh, Chuck Peavy. Mm. He did quite, quite, quite a few games for, 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 um, the, the XC range. And he was telling me that when he ported Load Runner across, he was given all the original source code for the disc version. And also he was told to, to make the necessary changes to, to have it working from cartridge. And he was told specifically by Atari not to put his name in the game. And he was to receive no credit for it. Yeah. Is, is it Doug? Was it Doug Smith who did Load Runner? I think it, might have been. I might have to double check that name. But who did the original version of Load Runner? His name does appear on the title screen, and, and he was to be credited because it was his game originally. But Chuck Peavy wasn't supposed to have got any credit, and he actually did put his name on the title screen. It said XE version by Chuck Peavy, and Atari went ballistic at him, and it was removed. So if you have a version of Load Runner for the XE that has Chuck Peavy's name on the title screen. You've got one of the early versions. <laughs> if you don't see his name on the title screen, you've got a later version from where they, they redid it without his name on. 
Mm. But he was told that he was never to be credited. So it does make you wonder with that if it's the same situation as where they got somebody to port the guy in GCC's code and um, he never received any credit for it. You were right. Your memory is awesome. Doug E. Smith, uh, born in 1960 in Renton, Washington, just down the street from me. (laughs) Unfortunately, he died in 2014. But he went to the UW, University of Washington. All right. uh, So on for a few listener reviews. Um, Over on our Facebook page, Sean Smith wrote, "Um, I want to like the XE game. I really do. The graphic design is okay. But the low frame rate makes everything seem too choppy. I might like the XE version better if the 7800 one didn't exist to compare it to. Yeah. Unfortunately, 7800 Food Fight makes the XE a rather disappointing second. Um, Comes and, sums up my thoughts. I think yeah. that's quite yeah. a similar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Jeff Fulton wrote, um, I think this is one of the better XEGS carts. This game demands a lot of sprites per line, so the choppy movement might uh, might be because the main player and some of the chefs is a is simulated sprites. Um, I think actually the chefs are real player missile graphics. And then um, your character and the food are all uh, soft sprites. Uh, it's but, a good point. It's yeah, a good but, point. Mm. But I never, like, I'm not, you know, disassembling it or anything. I'm just mm. kind of looking at it. Um, this would uh, be almost like a software blit of a multicolored image anima- animation rather than uh, one of the four or five players. Anyway, I'm not sure, but I still like this card. Um, I'm not sure who did the conversion back then, but with the types of games coming out now for the XL, XE, um, Atari Blast, Bosconian Time Pilot, I think a Food Fight arcade could be coded that more closely matches the 7800 version. Hmm. Um, and then when I shared this uh, post about Food Fight over on the Antic Podcast Facebook group, uh, Jeremy Holloway, a uh, friend of mine from out this way, um, wrote, Like with Desert Falcon, they certainly didn't use the Pokey well compared to the 7800's use of the bloody TIA. So <laughs> he agrees <laughs> with you there too, Kieran. Uh, TIA, of course, is the graphics and sound chip from the original 2600 VCS. Um which is basically used as a sound chip in, uh, in the 7800 when it's in 7800 mode. Um, although, obviously, a couple games uh, include the more capable Pokey sound chip uh, found in our 8-bits. Uh, they include them right in the cart if people haven't ripped them out and used them for their arcades or quad Pokies. Um, external reviews over at Atari Mania, it has a 7.4 out of 10 from 48 reviews. And High Retro Gate... Sorry, High Retro Game Lord on YouTube uh, has a little playthrough, and he gave it one of his weird-looking happy face thumbs-up <laughs> symbols at the end. Budget Games. Such a deal. Our budget game uh, this month is actually quite interesting, as I will go into. It's something a, a little bit different to, to other stuff that we're, we've looked at, and we'll, we'll probably see again. So Death Race was published by a company called Atlantis Software in 19... 19- 1987. Their model number was 80801X. It's a racing game and it was developed by a guy called Simon Leck. Now, here's a, the description from the back of the cassette label Drive at speeds of up to 300 miles an hour through town and country at day and night to overtake the 70 cars that left you stalled on the starting grid. Your reactions will need to be lightning, as the slightest mistake will mean an instant death. This is a 3D-style driving game viewed in the third person, and the first thing you will notice is that it bears a startling resemblance to the classic Sega arcade game Turbo, and this would be because Death Race is Turbo. Simon Leck had actually stated um, that he previously worked on the Atari 8-bit port for Coleco, but when they decided to stop publishing games and pull out the market, he just sat on it for a while um, until he saw some sort of recovery in the market, uh, made a few changes, changed the name, and sold the game to Atlantis Software in the UK, who then decided to call it Death Race. 
I actually think that on Atari Mania, I, I think that Simon Leck or somebody had commented with this story. I seem to remember seeing it there. I think that's how I came across it, actually. Um, but it's interesting because obviously the only a lot of the versions of Turbo weren't released because I seem to remember that the the 2600 version turned up a few years back and was published by Atari Age. Um, so quite interesting. Um, a lot of people probably don't know that the the 8-bit version actually is out there, but it was only released on cassette in uh, in the in the UK and probably some of Europe. Um, so it's played with the joystick and the controls are pretty simple. It's uh, left and right on the title screen to select between the five difficulty levels. Fire to start the race. Up and down to accelerate and deaccelerate. Your maximum speed is 300 miles an hour. That's about 482 kilometers an hour. Fun fact, that is less than half the land speed record. So it's not that fast. It's, 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 you know, three times as fast as most American cars <laughs> claim to go. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, three, 300 miles an hour. I mean, that's, that's, that's probably still over the, over the, uh, the amount that the fastest, uh, road production car does. I think, what's it's Bugatti Veyron is, I think it's a little bit under that, isn't it? I think that's the fastest production road car. I could be wrong, but I think it's either Bugatti Veyron or the Cassini Gregera, I think. And I think they're about 280 something, but I could be wrong. Um, avoid hitting other cars. Uh, that causes your cars to explode. Well, it doesn't really explode, it kind of dissolves. You have five cars at the start of the game. Um, at first, only one other car is on the road, but there'll be more if you progress. They don't swerve. They seem to have five unmarked lanes that they come down. Centre, far left and right, and slightly left and slightly right. Hitting the edges of the road has no impact. You can't crash into obstacles on the side of the road, nor are you even slowed down by them. The road is straight uh, with no curves, but there's a variety of scenery, and each of the five levels has different combinations in different orders. So they all start in the city with large buildings looming on either side of the road and uh, skyscrapers in the distance. There's some buildings or land on one side and water on the other side, like a seaside or a lakeside road. Along with skyscrapers on the horizon, there are also tall snowy mountains, smaller pointy hills, flatter textured hills, and sometimes combinations of all I've mentioned, really. And besides the plain land, water and buildings, there are also streetlights and trees along the side of the road. Again, sometimes in combinations of each other, lights on the left, trees on the right, etc., the colour palette sometimes changes between the levels uh, as well, most notably on the road. Uh, some areas look snowy, so you'll see uh, going through different parts of prob- probably the US or whatever. There are also some nighttime areas where everything is black except for the road and the cars and the light bulbs on the streetlights. You receive one point every moment as you drive and 10 points for every car you pass. Pass 70 cars and you advance to the next level and then gain an extra life. You have a limited amount of time to do this, 80 seconds to be exact. Otherwise, it is game over. Hey, Kieran. Legs- yes. I just like to, um, I looked it up while you were talking. Um, you were close. Um, the Hennessy uh, Venom GT goes at uh, 270 oh. miles an hour, but you came in second. With the uh, Bugatti Veyron, yeah. 268. So by two miles an hour. <laughs> there we go. So I'll, I'll give it to you. 
that I should have known the Hennessy as well, actually, but I, yeah. I, I knew there was three. I knew the Pikachu was one, the Kosenig was another one, and then I, I knew there was a third one, but I couldn't think what it was. And they said Hennessy. I was like, yeah, I know what it is now. <laughs> oh, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I play a lot. I play a lot of Forza on Xbox. That's why. Oh, uh, there's I'm a the big fan. I'm a big fan of driving games. The, the legacy of the game, uh, Turbo, was obviously an arcade game by Sega. Um, it appeared on ColecoVision in television, and I already mentioned there was a prototype version for the 2600, which was released in, in which was just finally discovered and, and released in more recent years um, via Atari Age. Uh, Turbo was featured, uh, albeit quite loosely, in the uh, film Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, for those who watched that, well, I still think it's an absolutely brilliant movie, personally. Um, Turbo was the kind of um, main protagonist um, who glitched. Antagonist, not protagonist. What am I talking about? Antagonist, yes, sorry. Um, in the film, uh, who caused all the problems and the glitch and... We've oh, seen in an, the an, arcade antagonist. And all of that stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they, they did use a bit of artistic license, but uh, it is kind of cool that, pe- that a lot of people remember it now f- for that film because the game had kind of largely been forgotten um, by the time Wreck-It Ralph came out. Uh, it's not to be confused with the controversial at the time, 1976 Exidy arcade game of the same name. Uh, where to buy? Um, having a look around, uh, eBay, it's, you can get it for eight dollars sixty. Uh, buy it now from the UK. So for UK guys, it's probably about a fiver. And apparently, there's a one for just under sixty dollars or best offer, which seems absolutely scandalous. Um, but there's always someone trying to uh, price gouge on eBay, as is the nature of, of eBay. So uh, let's have a look at uh, other ports and reviews. There's a few here. So uh, Tilt Magazine uh, gave it a. Six stars on ColecoVision. I think we mentioned Tilt before, giving a weird uh, rating out of six or something. Video Game Critic uh, gave the ColecoVision an A. All Game Guy gave the Arcade Game uh, five stars. Telematch Magazine gave the Arcade uh, two out of six. Oh, they didn't like it. They're the first people who didn't like it. Everyone else seemed to love the game. And All All Game Guide also reviewed the ColecoVision, and they gave that five stars as well. And Video Game Critic gave the uh, Intellivision version, which by all accounts is not as good, a C-. I, I did actually uh, look at the ColecoVision version, albeit briefly. I did a, a ColecoVision minority report for Retro Gamer several years back. And um, I did actually uh, talk about the, um, the ColecoVision version and say that uh, I very much enjoyed it. So it was a, a one of the games that I actually recommended in that article. The... Uh, Atari 2600 version was also featured on the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, episode 45. I featured it myself in my Atari 8-bit versus arcade YouTube video series, episode 13. And uh, there are two reviews to take note of over at Atari Mania's entry. So, Auntie Pasty, 10 years ago, May 2007, it was written. For reasons I can't put my finger on, I always like this game. On paper, it doesn't sound promising. The road is straight, no curves, and gameplay basically consists of dodging oncoming cars. The graphics are quite simple, and the buildings and trees move in a jerky, pattern cycle fashion, with abrupt scenery changes. In fact, it's almost identical to the Commodore 16 Plus 4 original. So from that, what they're saying is I'm guessing that Atlantis probably released a game on the Commodore 16 called Death Race. That's probably where they got the name from, because they were probably trying to to, to use the name uh, the game on as many formats as possible 
Yet somehow the graphics have a kind of charm to them. The gameplay is good fun. You can go on forever if you get good. My brother reached 1 million points after playing for hours and hours and had to, only had to stop for lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's quite cool. And Andrew Bernstein, back in 2006, said, uh, intended as a turbo port for the Atari 8-bit, Death Race would have greatly benefited from more development time. The seeds arrive at the execution next polis and especially panache as the gameplay really gets into an enthusiastic mood, unlike pole position, which literally makes you an addict. What's good? The different backdrops used in the game are a nice idea, which was rarely implemented at the time, probably only in the great American cross-country road race did it, but pole position and pit stop two didn't due to memory play space. To cut a long story short, Death Race has some moments, but they're too far and between to make a pleasurable experience. It's worth a curious look, but not much more. On uh, Atari Mania, it has a 5.7 out of 10 from 15 reviews. Uh, I just want to go back to a point there, actually, um, reading Andrew uh, Bernstein's little mention there. He mentions the American cross-country road race, which most Atari bit owners will know was actually an upgrade of the Activision game uh, Enduro, which appeared on the Atari 2600. And, of course, Enduro was a clone of Turbo. Uh, for the most part, um, they were, you know, Activision kind of a lot of their stuff was kind of loosely cloning arcade games like Chopper Command, just basically Defender, um, etc. Um, Beam Rider was Juno first, etc., etc. They, they kind of loosely copied arcade games, and Enduro was was loosely copying Turbo, I believe. So uh, that would kind of make sense to the similar similarities there with the Great American Cross Country Road Race being a, an upgrade of of um, of turbo and another interesting point i noticed there obviously talking about uh it lacks polish and panache as he said i think a thing you probably have to remember here is that the original version that he probably programmed for coleco probably would have only been something like a an 8k or 16k rom probably 16k at most so i would guess that he didn't add a lot to it for the tape release even though he would have obviously rom size wouldn't have been a problem so i think had it actually been written for a tape stroke disc release, they probably he probably would have had a lot more um, to play with because he probably could have written it to use as much memory as he wanted with with extra loading if needed, rather than um, obviously being c- constrained to a set ROM size due to due to obviously the money of produce uh, the cost of producing it. So that's another, another interesting thing to think about, I think, with this, because it's obviously a ROM that's, that, that's never came out as a ROM and be converted to, uh, to run from tape instead. So the Atari Cave website has a review of Death Race and a lot of fun info. Uh, check the show notes there. They gave it a 6 out of 10 with the comment Chrysler. It seems Atlantis took both the name and the logo font from the 1975 Roger Corman film Death Race 2000, which starred David Carradine and Sylvester Stallone, um, before his Rocky Rambo fame. And they also provide a pair of cheat files for the Atari Win 800 emulator. One so you can get unlimited time and another so you can get unlimited lives. So, uh, Michael, over to you um, with your review. Yeah, so um, I went over to Martari Mania and I noticed that they didn't have a shortage of racing games, including this game. I counted 17 unique racing titles. Uh, some of my favorites were, of course, previously mentioned, Great American Cross Country Roadways, Pit Stop 2, and, of course, Pit's uh, Pole Position. Um, I was also a little disappointed to find out that this wasn't the 1978 XD uh, arcade game of the same name. Um, but 
let's see how this one competes. Um, graphics, I give it a seven. Uh, for a budget game, I thought this looked pretty good. Lots of different environments. Uh, the buildings would change as you drove by, not just static. Uh, nice fonts. And the colors were a little bit harsh. And it doesn't look like they used the Atari's full color capabilities. Sound and music, I give it a four. Pretty simple. You got the engine noises, beeps, explosions. Uh, but I guess what else do you need from a racing game? But I can't say they did an exceptional, uh, uh, exceptionally well with creating them. Yeah, not uh, not after <laughs> Rescue and Fractalus. Uh, yeah, yeah, spoiled, yeah. Spoiled us last time. <laughs> yeah, got it. <laughs> Um, gameplay, I give a seven. It, it's pretty simple, but I found it really challenging and it offered an extended play. Um, I assume this is if you achieve a certain number. I didn't read the instructions. I just drove and yeah. you had mentioned that before 70 cars. Uh, lots of good uh, information was displayed on the, uh, on the screen. You got your score, countdown time, number of remaining cars, speed and miles per hour and cars passed. Unfortunately, you just drive straight, which would be good from uh, a time period before pole position. But I think that I would expect a little bit more by 1987. Uh, but like you said, it was a copy of an, another Turbo, which was a straight driving game. So now that I know that, I'm a little more forgiving. Presentation, I give it a five. Uh, the home screen's a little bit bland, and the box isn't anything special either. The cover art is sort of mediocre. You got a skull with them with eyeballs and a green wreath around the neck, but no neck. Checkered flag in the background. Uh, other than the shaded skull, it's, a, it's about five colors. Back of the box gives you uh, load time, which was really nice for a for a tape because uh, usually those things seem like they took a half hour. I don't remember any games that stayed uh, load time, so that was that was cool. But the instructions only give you a general gist of how to play the game. They could have in, in the back of the box. They could have uh, added some of the features of the game that would to really sell it, such as changing environments, increasing difficulty, etc. Overall, I give it a six. It's uh, not a horrible game, but it doesn't uh, much stand out from the many others that currently exist and which offer more. If this were 1987, I would definitely have picked it up, though. What about you, Bill? All right, so um, graphics, I give it a six. Uh, I thought the cars were kind of cute looking, um, n- not very deadly. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, they're all pointing in the same direction, which is a little bit sad, but, you know, memory constraints. Um, the 3D effect is fair. Uh, obviously not as smooth as pole position, which is smooth. Um, that that is a, That's a, like a shining example of, of what you can get the Antic and GTI chip, chips to do. But they made up for it with much more interesting scenery with the buildings and the trees and so forth. Turbo in the arcade has a smoother scenery motion, but with really warpy side effects on the edges. It's like kind of a fisheye lens almost. It's bizarre. Transitions were <clears throat> abrupt, uh, but they're pretty abrupt in, in the arcade Turbo 2. I actually checked out a uh, Commodore 64 port of Death Race, and it at least had a kind of wipe transition. Uh, so rather than all of a sudden all the trees turning into buildings, like the trees would go away, and then the buildings would begin appearing. Also, the Commodore 64 versions seem to have a, a few more kinds of graphics, like uh, pine trees instead of just the kind of round, fluffy-looking trees, um, road markers, and cacti, um, and a little bit more detail in the um, the objects on the horizon. And then also, what I thought was nighttime, or I guess maybe what is nighttime in this game, uh, is actually uh, shown as tunnels on the C64 version, and that kind of seems familiar to me from Turbo. I didn't watch a lot of videos of Turbo. I haven't played Turbo in, you know... What year is it? Uh, probably since about the time it came out, so 37 years. Um, in the Commodore 64 version, the, um, there's a kind of transition as if you're driving into a tunnel, um, and then everything on the screen is darkened. Um, in, in the Atari version, 
really it's just the the horizon like above the horizon is black below the horizon is black but the road is still all lit up all the cars are still very visible all you see is the the light bulbs from the the street lights um there are no hills you know i remember in um in turbo there was kind of a hilly effect where you'd roll over hill and go down and cars would kind of disappear off the horizon and then reappear that that doesn't exist in this one but that would be pretty hard considering the atari's hardware i mean at least for a game that also included the really detailed um Objects on the side of the, of the road. Um, sound of music, uh, I gave it a six. Uh, the incessant beeping when you pass the cars um, is the same in the arcade, but um, not as gentle of a sound as in the arcade. Uh, and there wasn't really much else to talk about. I mean, it's, it's suitable for this game. Um, gameplay four. The car's made out of the same explodium material as that sub from uh, 2600 Sequest. Um, and it's really no fair. If you're going too slow and somebody rear-ends you, you explode. They don't even explode either. They just they crash into you and you're dead. You crash into them and you're dead. Um, <laughs> in Turbo, you just bounce around the road a bit. There's no lives involved. Uh, so I guess maybe that's the difference that makes this game a death race. I don't know. Um, so I'd love to see a homebrew hacked version that adds a, a damage meter at least uh, rather than instant death. The snowy area seems to be just for show. You don't slip around like in uh, Enduro on the 2600 or, or even Indy 500 on the 2600. And nighttime is also just for show. Can compare this to the nighttime and especially the fog area of Enduro where like in the fog one, you don't see the cars coming until they're right on you. So you actually have to drive slow, otherwise you're going to crash. So uh, again, homebrew hackers listening. Um, so I guess for now, I'd, I'd rather play Enduro. Although you guys have got me really curious about the Great American Cross Country Road Race, which is not a game I've ever played but i'm looking oh, at the really? screen yeah i've never played that one but i hear if you mm-hmm. mention it's like enduro and i'm like well man sign me up yeah. um so presentation five uh it's got a very basic title screen menu as as most of these budget games do it looks like a very basic insert came with a tape with that silly skull art um but hey you get what you pay for um it sounds like this was a very inexpensive game so so hey i interject this um i so i looked up a uh, turbo while you guys were talking or you were talking and um it does have curves it doesn't have hills though <laughs> well what the heck so. game was i playing that had hills there was some game well, that had well outrun had hills no this but is maybe, way but yeah. this is way before yeah. outrun this is might have been before pole position yeah maybe it was like know. turbo 2 i don't know i yeah I'll i didn't look, look up turbo up. 2 wait one second <laughs> is is there a turbo 2 i'm just yeah there, there actually might be <laughs> kieran Set us straight, and, and what do you think of this game? Indeed. Um, I actually just thought I wanted to pick up something um, I just thought about while we were going through this, actually, before I, I go into my review. And it was, again, again going back to the arcade uh, game, um, something interesting that I remember reading, which kind of explains a little bit about the way the graphics are designed, I think, in, in Turbo, is that the um, it was Sega's first attempt to create um, a scaling hardware for an arcade game was turbo that they kind of played around with it and, and turbo was a result obviously we know what they later did with it because it was sega who uh came up with the super scalar hardware that was first used in hang on and then um later in outrun obviously space harrier afterburner etc 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 um and turbo was their first attempt to, to create some kind of um hardware scaling um, which is why they try to throw in as many different roadside objects to sort of make it seem impressive and 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 to give that 3D effect. So it's it's very interesting historically um, from that point of view that it was that it was their first kind of a, attempt at a, a you know a 3D scaling feature like the progenitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely so, the first the first that I saw like that that in pole position. But again, pole position had very limited 
It had it had the signs on the side of the road and the cars and then the uh the lights or not the lights the uh you know the the frame thing. Um, mm. but that was it. But this had full on buildings on the side and, and cliffs and stuff. So. Yeah, I'm not sure the technicalities of it. Because obviously, in the Super Scalar hardware that came later, it was a chip that was on the on the on the board. You know, it was it was a custom graphics chip that would, did all the scaling for them. So they just said, take object and scale times, you know, whatever. And obviously, that hardware was was notably for Atari fans. The Atari Lynx had hardware scaling. Um, it was the first home machine to have hardware scaling. Was the Atari Lynx, but uh, the turbo hardware i don't believe it had hardware scaling i believed it was some kind of um, more i think it was some kind of software algorithm that they'd kind of created it probably said take pixel and double times do you know what i mean according to depth yeah. or something like that and um, they were probably using some kind of algorithm but that was mainly the way the object the road objects were designed in that way that they kind of just appear straight up at the size of the road it was obviously because it was easy to write something that would scale the ob- objects like that. I think the scenery was very much designed around what they were trying to do. Um, so, uh, so con- continuing the tangent, now I'm curious: did the, did the Game Gear, the Sega Game Gear, have hardware scaling like the Lynx? No, nothing. No, like that, no. wow. Okay, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Hmm. The, the first, the first, the first system, full stop, that you could buy in the home that had hardware scaling was the Atari Lynx. It was also other systems that also had hardware scaling. The, the, the Super Nintendo did to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. It could n- nowhere near to the, the level that the Lynx did because the Lynx could scale sprites and bitmaps. So it could it could scale anything basically. Yeah. Um, it could yeah. scale yeah. scale and zoom in out. Um, but the 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 snares had obviously mode seven, which it could only scale and rotate a bitmap, a, a background layer. It was actually a background layer. It had to be defined as a background layer. Yeah, and, and that's, scale, that's yeah, it couldn't scale sprites. And that's how you get that. Don't realize that super flat looking uh, 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 Mario Kart, where like everything that really should be like a, you know, uh, <laughs> something on the side of the road is just a texture on the road, like literally like painted. Like you can't run over that picture of a brick. Um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly that. They they did they did. I think one of the DSP chips they developed that was in that was put in cartridges because obviously a lot of SNES oh, yeah. games had. Uh, yeah. They did develop one of their. I think was one of the DSP chips had a sprite scaling on it as well. So there are there are some stairs games that have sprite scaling, but it wasn't a feature of the console. It was a feature that was added in cartridges later on. One one thing you, you mentioned that the Lynx can scale basically anything. Uh, Todd's Adventure in Slime World is is a perfect example because the entire world is just kind of oozing and warping, and and they're they're just yeah. applying that like anything on the screen, just make it wobble. <laughs> so yeah, in the Lynx, I think it's described as hardware manipulation distortion panning and zooming i think it's how it's actually described so basically it means take an object and and do what the hell you like with it yeah. the hardware just do what it's told basically yeah. um every guy I've, I've spoke ever spoken to who worked with the links said it was incredible what it could do with you know the way you could manipulate graphics with with ease because the hardware did it all for you yeah. um of course with the links as well i mean i know a lot of games were written so basically everything on the screen is a sprite so it was just an easy way of doing a stun runner, for example. Mm-hmm. They they drew all the polygons of sprites. Yeah, that that's an incredible port. Okay, so we've yeah, digressed yeah. into one of my other Completely. favorite consoles, but let's get back to the yes. it. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so going back to Death Race, I'm sure that was an interesting story. But going back to Death Race, uh, I gave it graphics an eight because uh, visually the game is great with uh, nice color choices, and I, I thought it had a particularly good sense of speed. 
I thought that was one thing that they got nailed down. You know, it, it does feel like you're, you're going pretty fast at times in the game. And obviously that's because they managed to get the, the scenery moving quickly on the sides of the road. Uh, the sound of music, um, I only gave it a five. It's all pretty basic. Nothing to write home about. Um, I think to be honest, that's a driving games in general a lot from, from that period. You just kind of got an engine noise and a few, um, bits and pieces, but yeah, nothing special. Uh, gameplay. Uh, eight, I really enjoyed Turbo, so default, I enjoyed Death Race 2, as it's basically the same game. I think, as I kind of already said earlier in, in, in the podcast, um, I'm a massive fan of driving games in general, so I tend to be a little bit biased when it comes to any sort of racing and driving games. Um, I tend to, tend to enjoy them. It's always a genre that I've, um, been a huge, huge, huge fan of. So, um, I, I enjoyed playing Death Race, um, a great deal. Um, presentation. Uh, back to a five again, um, because the cover art is nothing special. In-game pr- presentation is, is pretty basic indeed. Again, I think that goes back to the fact that it was a, it was originally a ROM. And with the, as we remember, you know, the, all those early ROM games usually had very basic title screens and stuff because it was a, a way to save, uh, space on the, uh, the cartridges. And, uh, overall, um, I gave it a, a good solid seven. I think it's a good version of Turbo, um, albeit with a few minor changes. Um, that's fun to play. Um, it could have been even better with a bit more polish, I think. But if I would have paid two ninety nine for that game back in the late eighties, I would have been um, pretty pleased with that. I think, to be honest. Yeah, yeah I got to remember that that you know I'd be spending that money on a magazine and have to type yeah. in a bunch of programs. You're never gonna. I mean, yeah. for the most part, you're never gonna get a typed in program that's gonna be as good as this. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we cool. should call it a day. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. See you next time. In our next episode, we'll be taking a shot at the Atari port of Exidy's 1983 arcade light gun game, Crossbow, and then take a stab at the 1986 Mastertronics budget game, Ninja. You can find us online at www.xegs8bit.com, where we provide links to our Twitter account and Facebook page. Thanks again to Compute Her for giving us permission to use her song software as our show's theme song. Visit Compute Her, that's C-O-M-P-U-T-E-H-E-R.com for more information. By the way, Michelle and her husband Seth have just released a new 8-bit weapon album, DLC, the OST, or downloadable content, the original soundtrack. It's a concept album and a satire on how the modern gaming industry releases a polished commercial product to the public. Check it out at 8bitweapon.com. We'd also like to thank artist John Von Neumann for the use of his original image creation for Food Fight, which we use for this episode's title graphic. John has produced some amazing vector artwork featuring the Atari 8-bit computers as well as many video games. John also sells his artwork, which is featured on clothing, household items, phone cases, and stickers. You can order these from tpublic.com. That's tepublic.com under the name VHZC. John also can be contacted on Facebook as user john.vonneumann.969. And finally, thanks to the folks who contribute to and maintain the Atari Media Database, Wikipedia, and other fine results of Google searching. We're part of the Throwback Network, a group of podcasters with one thing in common. We all love old things. Whether it's old video games, old movies, old toys, or simply old stories, the Throwback Network is the place to find them all. Visit throwbacknetwork.net to learn more. We're also part of the Retro Junkies Network, a network of like-minded retro enthusiasts who like to keep things clean and family-friendly. Our content ranges from retro gaming, retro movies, retro TV shows, retro music, and basically anything retro that's worth remembering. Find us at theretrojunkies.com.
I was in my Java class once, one time, and uh, the teacher had one of those uh, portable mics with him, and he actually went to the bathroom. Oh, God. That was it. <laughs> oh, God. So, and that was actually in the movie um, Naked Gun. Oh, the, yeah, I think that's movie. right. Yeah, I forgot. So we're all sitting there listening to <laughs> He was awesome. He was a forgetful kind of guy. He wasn't exactly on the ball. That was hilarious. Oh my God. So he says every time he, from that point forward, he just like took the microphone off before he had to leave. Seriously. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so where to buy this game? Best Buy has him $30 brand new. Hang on, hang on a second. You said Best Buy. Huh? You said Best Buy. Oh my God. No, don't go to Best Buy for any reason. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I just liked the home improvement impression there. It's uh, <laughs> brilliant. Bonus round. Master System was hugely successful in the UK, where it wasn't in the US. They sold more Master Systems in the UK than they did in the US, which shows the big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've never you seen think, one of these. Because what, what, what was US NES sales? Something like 70 million? And like um, US Master System sales was under 2 million. And in the UK, the Master System sold 2.2 million. Uh, the NES sold 600,000. Wow, that's all. Wow. The Master System outsold it by near enough four to one. Oh my gosh. And the, and the, suppose the, 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 the figure I have heard for the 7800 in the UK was 500,000. So the NES only just outsold the 7800. Wow, <laughs> and was and was outsold four to one by the by the uh, Mars system. Wow, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the NES. It, show, it, it shows how different our markets were. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. Back then, yeah. It is interesting how they they started to they started to parallel a bit more after that from sixteen bit generation onwards. But certainly, eight bit years, the UK market was totally different to the US. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Well, it's sad too because I see you know people posting. Look what I got! I got one of these BBC computers or something, a specy, and I'm like, God, I don't get those over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did have a lot in common computer-wise. Really, I yeah. only Atari, Atari, a bit in Commodore 64, which we both had, but apart from that, very different, really. Yeah, so Apple II was nothing over here. No one had an Apple II. That was nothing. We didn't have TRS-80 here. We didn't, you know. Yeah, so as was quite different. As scene was quite different. And get yourself, get your hands on an apple over here. I mean, you see what those people are asking for those things. Or, I mean, there's just, they're gold over here. The only Apple presence we ever had over here is when the Mac came in and, and people started using Macs for, for desktop mm. publishing. That was, but that was, still wasn't big, you know, that wasn't a, a huge right. thing. But I can remember, I can remember at college we had some Apple Macs when I was at college and that would have been 1993. And we had a few Apple Macs at college, which we used for DTP. We we used Macs for for computer science. It was bizarre. Oh. Yeah, it was really weird. We um. used BBC Micros. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still, what's well, who gets the educational uh, you know contract? Yeah, which Apple's yeah, exactly. really good at. Yeah, yeah. We, it was it was funny. And and our computer room when I was at senior school, we we call it in our, you call it high school, we call it senior school. Um, I did computer studies um, and learned to program and stuff like that. And in our computer room, we had um, 15 BBC micros, but they, they they were made up of various models. We had a, I remember we had one base model, one base model BBC B that was like 32k useless. And if, <laughs> if you got, if you ended up using that computer, it was like, 
like, oh my god, poor you. Because most yeah. of the others were BBC Master 128s. So they were 128k and they had an accelerator chip which made them faster. And then at the end of our computer room, the last three computers, which were, let's say, 15 BBCs, then we had 16, 17, and 18, because they were all networked. And 16, 17, and 18 were Acorn Archimedes, and only the, the, the cool kids were allowed to use the Archimedes. <laughs> <laughs> because they were, they were 32-bit risk computers. I don't oh, know if you're wow. aware of the Archimedes. The Archimedes was the first computer to use an ARM chip. Because oh. Acorn, Acorn still exists as ARM. Acorn developed the BBC Micro, and Acorn developed the Archimedes. The Archimedes right. was badged was to the BBC as well. The BBC A3000 is the same computer as the Archimedes. Hmm. Oh, wow. And um, that was the first RISC computer, RISC chip computer. Wow, and I think over here, I remember the you know the PowerPC, I think, was one of them, but mm-hmm. the um, uh, Next computer, wasn't that? Uh... Next was 68,000, wasn't it? Was it 68,000? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, so then I'm thinking the, the PowerPC. So the heritage of pretty much everyone's iPhone. Yep, yep, is the <laughs> yeah, BBC it's, Micro. It's the BBC <laughs> Micro. <laughs> well, good for them. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, an interesting story. Uh, very interesting now, story. Now I'm trying to remember when the 68,000 was introduced in 79. Yeah. And it took like, a, it seemed like five years for it to become anything, right? At least, like uh, Macintosh was the first one. Yeah, well, well uh, I only read the other day that apparently um, Atari had exclusivity on it for two years for what? arcade games. Oh, yeah, they really? The, they, yeah, they were the first people to use it in arcade games. Uh, System 1 and System 2 used 68,000, you know, Marble Madness, Paperboy, Gauntlet. Um, they used 68,000. F- F- Food Fight probably would have been one of the first games to use. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, 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 Food Fight was, that's right, and that was 83, so, yeah, it was just before the Mac. Hmm. Yeah, so Atari had exclusivity to use that chip in uh, home hardware for two years. Huh. Before, um, before, um, obviously anyone else used it, and then obviously the next computers would have been the ST Amiga and Mac. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember when uh, Paperboy Paper came to the arcades and saw Paperboy, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh, this looks so good!" And then Tubin came out. That that was another one I think that uh, was you know made by Atari. Yeah. And there was what was the third one you just mentioned? There was another one you mentioned that was Marvel Madness. Just, Marble Madness, yeah. That was, that was cool, too. Gauntlet did. Gauntlet did as well. Oh, Gauntlet, yeah. God. These are all bring-back memories. 